0: Today, we're in the presence of a two-time Australian Olympian and 5 times Commonwealth Games representative for Australia. (laughs) A lot of people don't realise, and you'll hear the story as we go on, because there's a lot of interesting parts to this story, but Eloise really is a statesperson in the Australian Olympic and Sporting um, team. And she's one of the most respected sports people. And it's an incredible honour for us to have her here to share her story and also that of Julius Atron. So would you give her a big warm welcome as she comes this morning?
1: Uh, thanks for having me. It's so good to be up here. It's so great to reconnect with Mike and Teresa. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it seems like just walking in here feels like of coming home (laughs) oh so cool um yeah and it's honestly it's so um i'm just so happy for you guys to to be leading such an incredible church and you guys are so lucky by the way i hope you know how lucky you are and how blessed you are there's a lot of people that that miss you mike and miss you Teresa, back in the shire um and you're an incredible leader i just want to honor you and um you and Teresa and You are exactly where you need to be.
0: Oh, thank you. I didn't expect you to say that, but that's very nice. (laughs) So just as a way of introduction before we get into a bit of the story. So I first met Eloise in the year 2000, um, and uh, she came along to our church, and we'll get to that story in just a minute. Uh, And then as we're going to introduce in the story a little bit later... Uh, we met Julius H on, and Julius couldn't be here today, as I said um, a few minutes ago. Uh, But for those who uh, didn't hear or have just come in, Julius is a Ugandan Olympian and uh, works with the Love Mercy Foundation, and he's got an incredible story, which we're going to hear part of today. But he just wanted to give this greeting to everyone today because he was really sad he couldn't be here. So we've got this little video clip that we're going to play of Julius for everyone here.
2: Hello, everyone in Australia. Uh, Good Life Community Church. Pastor Mike, it is good to see you and uh, you know, I hope to see you when I come next time I miss you. My name is Julius Echon. I'm talking from Uganda. I'm two times Olympians and apologize for not coming this time in Australia due to outbreak Ebola virus. And I want to share with you the project is doing so great. The Love Mercy Sense for Seeds project is doing wonderful, although there was a drought, but you know, hopefully the season has resumed back and the seeds project is going so well. The clean water is going so well. Everyone is so happy. The health center is going so well. Everyone is so happy. The saving groups is going so well, micro, micro loans, whatever we say. Thank you and God bless you and bye-bye.
0: So that's Julius, uh, he's a wonderful human being, he's got a wonderful family, and um, we're, we're actually genuinely sad because he, he's a really funny guy, uh, and he's got a really great story to tell, but we're gonna unpack part of that today. Um, but just before we get into your childhood story, because there's a picture up here we're gonna need some background on, tell us about this morning. So I picked Eloise up from a hotel this morning, and I said, oh, did you go for a run this morning? And she said, yeah, I did. Tell us what happened this morning and how it relates to good life.
1: Yeah, uh, I was out on a run, um and I went past, on my way back, I went past a, a group of runners who had clearly um, were just about to start running. And I ran past them and a couple of minutes later I thought, I'm, I, it doesn't matter what pace I'm running at the moment because I'm not training hard. Um, so I thought I might as well just loop back and, and run with those guys, see if, see if they'll have me. And uh, anyway, got chatting to those um, group of runners, there was about eight of them. and. Um they asked me what I was doing in the sunny Coast, and I told them um, that I was here to speak at, at good life church and um, and yeah, they had really great things to say all of them they started rattling off all of the good things that this church did and um, yeah, it was really encouraging. I hope you are encouraged by that and it's it's um, It's not an anomaly, but it it is different that people that don't necessarily go to church know exactly what the church does and know exactly what good things they do. And it was all so positive and, um, yeah, really heartwarming. So be encouraged that you're doing good things and the community is noticing and seeing it. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: So good. I was pretty encouraged by that this morning. And uh, I just love that you just like join a group, see a bunch of runners, go, hey, you guys, can I join you guys?
1: I'd um, so much rather run with people than on my own, so. So good. Yeah, it's good.
0: And it was just a sneaky 10-kilometer run this morning down to the beach, and yeah. 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 We do those kinds of things very regularly. <laughs> um,
1: How anyway, far did you go this morning, Mike?
0: Oh, uh, I, it was, th- I think it was 13 Ks in the car. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: By the way, since moving to the sunny coast, you've worked on your tan. Oh, <laughs> this is, <what>? uh, yeah, <laughs> that is something else. This is gonna you be a fun morning. You used to be a ghost.
0: Wow, there you go. <laughs> Thanks. <Huh? laughs> My daughter's loving that. Yeah. Brilliant. That's good. We'll encourage you to know. All right, so you've just come back from running the New York Marathon, and we're going to circle back to that a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. But take us right back to this picture and and your childhood dream. You grew up, you ended up with a dream. Tell us about that and how that started to
1: unfold. Uh, Yeah, this picture's at Little Athletics. I was clearly ecstatic to come second um, in one of the races. I, my Olympic dream, I started when I was just 10 years old, I, I remember watching the Barcelona Olympics on television, and I was watching the women's distance running events go round, and I was just so inspired. And I remember turning to my mum and dad and saying, I'm, I'm going to do that one day. And I just became obsessed with the Olympics, I came, became obsessed with reaching the pinnacle of, of sport and the pinnacle of what I love to do. And, I used to play, um, not play games with the other kids in the neighbourhood unless they were named after the Olympics. It had to be the, the hopscotch Olympics, the slip and slide Olympics, <laughs> the knock and run Olympics. And I'd spend hours in my room going through mock Olympic medal ceremonies. I'd build a podium out of, of yellow pages and encyclopedias. And I had the national anthem and I'd stand up on the, on the top spot and sing it out with hand on heart. And, um, Actually, the um, theme song for the 1996 Atlanta Olympics was Whitney Houston's um, One Moment in Time. And that following Christmas, all of my Christmases came at once when I was gifted the cassette tape of that song. And I played it on repeat. Have you ever heard a 14-year-old tomboy sing a Whitney Houston power ballad? Can we hear it? Give me one... Moment in time (laughs) When I'm more than I thought I could be
0: (laughs) Kath and Kim couldn't have done it any better (laughs) (laughs) So you grow up with this childhood dream Um, In the year 2000 I was a young youth pastor in a church in Sydney, Mm. and this is not a good start, (laughs) Um, and a a young girl walks into our church, uh, an auditorium not too different from this, and I'm just seeing Kat straight through here, because she was there at that time, Mm. and um, tell us what happened, and why you turned up there, who invited you, like, what happened, and what was the backstory to being there at our church?
1: yeah. I was 16 years old, I was in year 11 at school and I had just qualified for my first Olympics, the Sydney Olympics and um, it was all very exciting, I was measured for the uniform, I was selected for the shadow team and I was excited out of my skin to run at my first Olympic Games and um, three weeks after qualifying I suffered my first major injury of stress fracture and uh, I was forced out of the Olympics. And uh, I was at school um, not long after I had the news and the diagnosis and everything. And this is, these are good tears, by the way. Um, and a friend came up to me and, and she said, I, I heard about what happened and I just want you to know that I've been praying for you. And um, and I believe that God's got a great plan for your life. And she was actually not a friend at that point. I hadn't ever met her. She was actually new to our school. She'd been kicked out of the Christian school. <laughs> Classic. Um, but, yeah, it was the first time I ever met her. She saw me at lunch. I was sitting on my own. And she came up and she said that. She said, I've been praying for you and I believe that God's got a great plan for your life. And... Um, and a couple of weeks later she invited me to church and I came into church and I heard you speak, Mike and you preached a really simple but incredibly powerful message of the gospel and, you know, I grew up in going to church every Sunday we went to a Catholic church and I still had this really warped sense of who God was I thought that God was this huge being in the sky that was going to strike me down and if I did something wrong and there was so much shame around that I actually thought that I'd done something wrong and that's why I was injured and that's why I was missing out and um yeah Mike you just preached this incredible you know the message of the gospel that um we are loved unconditionally and that Jesus died for me and for everyone else um and you know, that God numbered, God has numbered the hairs on our head, you know, and his thoughts about us outnumber the grains of sand and, you know, I was blown away by that and I, you know, I accepted Jesus into my heart that night and um, started my faith journey and, yeah, Mm. that was it.
0: Wow. So lots of people were with you in that journey, that was a tough year. Um, tell us about watching the 2000 Olympics huh. and about a cool moment that happened one night.
1: Yeah, I, uh, so I watched, we went out to the stadium that I would have, um, to watch the race that I would have been in. It was the same night as Cathy Freeman won gold. And some of you will remember this night. It was the most inspiring sporting moment I have ever seen. Um, there was grown men crying their eyes out around me. One of them was my dad. And I begged my mum and dad to let me go for a run after, um, after the, the meet. And um, by the time we got back to, to the Shire, I, I'd worn them down. And we drove over to the local oval. And there was no lights on. It was after midnight by this time. Dad just drove the car up straight on top of the field and turned the high beams on. And I ran around for about 20 minutes just imagining and dreaming what it would be like to run in the Olympic Games one day. And you know, my dream was still alive. It didn't have a a used by date. And failing once didn't mean that failure was always going to be my story.
0: After the 2000 Olympics, you dusted yourself off and you went, all right, let's keep going. Mm. Tell us about the lead up um, to what was ahead. And did you give up? Did you keep going? Obviously you kept going, because we already told everyone at the beginning <laughs> you were a two-time Olympian. Yeah. But let's pretend they didn't remember that part. What happened?
1: Yeah, I have we got a picture of the poster that I um, made? I made a poster when I was 16 years old and it, it originally read, run at the Sydney Olympic Games, um, the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games. And uh, after I missed out, I had it up in my room. I uh, Put it up on my wall and I look at it every day and after missing out on that Olympics I, I wrote 2004 and I missed out on that and wrote 2008 and um, after I missed out on 2008 I was so discouraged and I, I took it down off my um, wall in my room and I didn't see it for a few years and then when I, um, when I was... The night before I boarded the plane to to go to the London Olympics, my first Olympics, um, my dad found it underneath the house and uh, dusted it off and ceremoniously handed it to me. And it was just, I think it was just this moment where I was like, God can do anything when we choose to persevere, you know? And um, yeah, that was... As a poster, I might add to it because I'm going to have a crack at Paris. <laughs> Come on. I'm, not, I'm not tired yet. <laughs> but, yeah, um, but yeah, I got after um, after missing out in 2000. I had a I had to go as I said at the Athens Olympics, and the same thing happened. I, I was measured for the uniform and selected for the shadow team, and I got another injury before the games and Finally, I got a breakthrough um, before the Melbourne Commonwealth Games in 2006, and I learned a lot from that one race. I learned that you can actually go deaf for a short time from 90,000 people screaming you down the home straight. One of them was Mike.
0: <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> it's all good. Um, but yeah, the, the biggest learning, I, get, I guess, came after the finish line, and we're going to watch a few minutes of the race, I yeah. think. Um, Can we
0: click that video clip? Because I think I'm out of sync now, so... Thank you.
3: They're about to lap a
1: runner
0: here.
3: Then Sarah Jamison, and we may well have another casualty on this lead group. In as Chinongi starting to just struggle. Yep, Chinongi is gone. So we're down to five. Two Australians, two Kenyans,
4: and an Englishwoman now in the group of five. And this is getting quite exciting. Jamison's still there. Silver medalist in the 59 metres at the back of the field. Weddings there, running well. Never put a foot wrong so far, Weddings. Pavey, though, has been leading them through. Pavey now has started to really pick the pace up down the back straight. The English woman. They're starting to spread out a little. They've got their own little bit of space between each other. England, Kenya, Australia, Kenya,
3: Australia. Aussie girls both running brilliantly here. Joanne Pavey will be first into the home straight, Isabella Ocicci second, and Eloise Wellings third, Lucy Caboo fourth and Sarah Jamison fifth, they are the chances for the medal. And remember what we saw from Caboo, don't forget her, there she is in fourth place, the little Kenyon very fast over the last two or three hundred metres. bell. one run to go, women's 5,000 metre final. Joanne Povey leads the way. Isabella Ocici, only a metre away though. Eloise Wellings third, Lucy Caboo fourth, Sarah Jamison fifth, they're the chances as they go down the back the last time. Povey's piling it on, and Cici is coming up onto her shoulder though. Can she respond?
4: She is, she's lengthening the stride, these two stride for stride. Caboo coming from the back though, Jamieson is still coming. Jamison's got to raise her game. She's coming past
3: now, Wellings. It's going to be the last 150 that makes all the difference. To home turn, what a finish here. It's Pavey and Ochichi. They draw clear from Caboo. Wellings a chance for a medal. Then Jamison, Ochichi dashed away though. Isabella Ochichi. she went up another gear. Wellings still a chance for a medal. It's Ochichi clear from Pavey. Caboo holding Wellings. And Otichi wins, it's another gold for Kenya. Isabella O'Tichi, gold medalist in the women's 5,000. Joanne Pavey second for England, and third from Kenya, Lucy Kabu. Magnificent run by Eloise Wellings in fourth, and Sarah Jamison, the silver medalist from the 1500. A great run, finishing in fifth.
4: Well, fabulous performance from the Australian girls. They've smashed their personal best. They really have. Almost a quarter of a minute off of some of their performances.
1: Still hard to watch. (laughs) I I had a moment when I crossed the line where I was like, yeah, fourth. (laughs) It's always the hardest place to come because you walk away without a prize, but I feel like God really spoke to me in the days leading afterwards where... You know, I'd put myself in the best position possible. I had run a 16-second personal best. I'd done everything that I could to win a medal. And that was the result. And I had to accept it. And I also had to celebrate my effort. And I think sometimes we forget to do that. Despite not getting the result that we hoped for, we can still celebrate our effort. And that's... That kind of lesson I've taken, that, was that, that race was in 2006. And every time I've fallen short of my goal, I've gone back to... I know what it's like to place fourth, you know? But I can, these are the things that I did well. And um, this is how I was honouring God with my gift. And that's all we can do.
0: Yeah. Amazing. So you decide you want to move ahead towards the Beijing Olympics. Um... Tell us what happened.
1: Yeah, so Beijing was two years later after that race, and I was in the shape of my life, and I was selected again for the shadow team and measured for the uniform for the third time, and just three months out from the Olympics, I, I got another stress fracture in my foot. And it was at this point that I really wanted to give up. I was I was just devastated. Um, I was questioning... What God was doing, I was. I was really. Um, it was a really difficult time, but I got this opportunity to go over to Portland for this last-ditch effort to try and rehab my foot in time for the Olympics, and I was really negative about um, how it was going to work out. I didn't really know why I was going, or I almost I lost the ability to hope, in a way. Um, I didn't want to hope anymore for anything good. And, uh, but I got on the plane, and it was in Portland that I met Ugandan athlete Julius Achon and we became fast friends. We have a really similar sense of humour. And, uh, and Julius asked me about my foot and my injury, and I was really honest with him. I said, I don't know what I'm doing here. And, um, you know, I, this will be the third Olympics that, I'll probably miss and he said if I told you my story and where I've come from your foot problem will become very small (laughs) and it did. Um, Julius began to tell me his story of being born into poverty in northern Uganda and at age 10 he was kidnapped and forced to be a child soldier and he was held at a rebel camp for three months um, and miraculously escaping one day. made it home to his family, he walked three days to get home and found his family alive. And um, he was desperate to get an education, but his parents couldn't afford the $5 per semester school fees. So, but he, he heard that if he became a, a, good, a good sports person, then he could potentially get a scholarship to go to school. And to cut Julius' story really short, he became an incredible runner. He, he competed at the um, two Olympics, the Atlanta Olympics in 96 and the 2000 Olympics Um, I was watching him in the 800 metres from my lounge room in in Sydney um, at the Sydney Olympics and betting on him with my younger brother, not knowing that eight years later I would meet him and and we'd become um, great friends and I think we've got a a, a video that visually depicts Julius's story. Yeah. So we might might watch that now. Yeah, let's watch that.
5: I was abducted by LRA in the northern Uganda when I was 11 years old. I ran away to save my life. My running took me into Olympic Games and multiple records. But the most important place running took me was into the lives of the children and to help my community. My name is Julius Echon. I'm 38 years old. I'm from northern Uganda in the village of Awake. I returned back to Uganda in 2003 October to visit my family. Then one morning, I went for a run. So at the end of my run, then I found these 11 orphans sleeping under the bus. They said their parents were dead. Then I said, can I walk you to my family? So they all accepted and they walked together with me. My family and the kids who were still in the refugees coming later. And when the whalings family and our Luis the runner, came, they found my dad and Jimmy all sitting together with the children. So they went back to the hotel and they started crying. So I went visiting them. I found them, they're all crying. They were in tears. I said, what's wrong? So they said, Julius, we feel so bad for you. What can we do to help you? I said, you know, what we need mostly to take this kid to school and people were dying of hunger. Actually, 11 people died in this community because of famine. There was no food. There was nothing to plant. And they came up, they said, okay, let us go back to Australia. Then we start the project. That's how it began. My favorite thing about Love Master Foundation, it has brought my community together. It has reduced the number of orphanage, or the street kids. People are no longer starving or dying from hunger. People are able to make money from selling their food crops that Love Master give. And also with the Medical Health Center, so far the record is showing that we have treated over Seventeen thousand people. Without God's mercy, I think many people in my community could have died. And also, I thank God for bringing me back to my community to look back and help in that way. Oh, the reason why I do this to show to other people that they can do it, that one humble person can make a difference. I used to run to save my own life, but now I run to save the life of others.
0: So You see the work over in Uganda and you're compelled, you have to do something. Tell us what happened, tell us how Love Mercy Foundation started and what's happened since.
1: Yeah, so Julius uh, shared his vision with us um, that he wanted to start some community development projects to help people get back on their feet um, after the war. And people were coming out of internally displaced people's camps um, in the... Um, the main town in Lira, and coming back to the, their real, coming back to their homes, um, but having nothing to start with, having no seeds to plant. Um, there was no clean water at the time, um, and yeah, it was it was a pretty uh, dire situation. And and Julius had this incredible vision to to stand alongside um, these communities, and he asked us to to partner with him, and um, and yeah, that's that's I guess the why we started the Love Mercy Foundation and we raise the resources and stand alongside communities in Uganda to come up with innovative solutions to overcome poverty and yeah that's that's our main vision. Yeah,
0: And so a number of projects have taken place from the building of a medical clinic and Mm -hmm. maternity wards to then the Sense for Seeds project. Can you tell everyone about that and how that works and why it's so important on the ground there?
1: Yeah, so our Sense for Seeds project is one of our three main projects. As you said, Mike, we've got the, the medical clinic um, that was named after Julius's mother, who was tragically killed during the war, the Christina Health Centre. And uh, the, we drill um, wells for, for clean water and also Sense for Seeds. So, Sense for Seeds is a micro loan farming program run primarily with women. Um, And a a $30 donation sponsors one woman to go through the program. She receives a 30-kilogram loan of seeds, be it beans or or sesame. Um, And through that 30 kilograms of seeds, she generally harvests around 300 kilograms of food. And with that food, she can um, feed her own family uh, and also sell it at the marketplace so she can pay for other things like school fees and emergency medical and other household items. So it's actually creating the opportunity for people to create their own livelihood through farming and um, the very fertile soil um, of Uganda. And this year we've had, um, we have 19,000 women in the program and- um, Hang on,
0: hang on. 19,000 women are now part of this program. It started from scratch. It's incredible. This is many of those women here.
1: Yeah, yeah. so this is a distribution day, so the women will line up to, to receive their seeds. Um, and, yeah, they're incredibly hardworking. We have an incredible local team on the ground in Uganda who... Um, three weeks of the year go through distribution and then they support um, the communities um, throughout the whole growing season and then at the end of the season the woman actually hands back the loan so that we can pass it on to another woman in the next season. So there's storehouses um, in each community and the seeds are stored there. And treated um, so that we can pass it on. So that's how the, the program... We started the, the program with 300 women um, back in 2010, the year after we started Love Mercy, and, and that's how the program has grown since then. And, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. 12 years on, it's quite amazing. And I've been there, and I have the privilege of serving on the board of Love Mercy Foundation, and it's amazing when you go there and you, you stand and woman after woman and man after man come up and thank you for believing in them. And this is not the West going in as the saviors. This is actually their people being empowered to actually um, get out of poverty in their environment, in their culture. We're not going in running the programs, we're empowering those people there because they know best what's gonna help them and it's a pretty powerful thing. Um, And even the, um, I think it's worth mentioning the medical clinic and the maternity ward because we take for granted the incredible medical care that we have here, but there were women in Julius's village who would literally were dying in childbirth because they didn't have basic care, and now that's been able to change.
1: Yeah, so one of our um, biggest fundraisers of the year is um, our 5K a day in May. Uh, where we raise money specifically for the maternity space at the Christina Health Centre. And there's been over 600 babies, healthy babies, born there um, since 2017, since the space opened. And uh, just this May, this year, we raised enough money to buy an ultrasound machine and also pay for a sonographer um, to be able to um, work three days a week in at the clinic. And um, she started about a month ago and... Um, women are being able to come in and um, get an ultrasound, find out the sex of their baby, find out if they're having one or two or three um, babies, because <laughs> often that's the case, that a woman will come in. And um, we had a woman about 12 months ago um, who had triplets and had no idea she was having triplets. Um and, yeah, it just gives us, I guess, our team, the ability to um, go that extra level in care um, for the women who are pregnant in this area and, um, and give them the opportunity to let them know if there's going to be any issues with their, um, their, the process of actually having the baby so that we can refer them to the main hospital, which is where they will do emergency caesarean. So eventually the vision, the next step we want to take for, for the Christina Health Centre is to go to a level 4 clinic um, where we will be able to um, deliver um, babies through surgery and have a, a surgeon on site um, so I guess that's the, that's the next vision and next step yeah. for the clinic
0: yeah it's incredible I, you can clap <laughs> it's worth celebrating you know we're gonna to get to uh, what's happened in your career since just, in just a moment, but it's one of the things that I th- thought was worth highlighting today and is so important is that for so many of us, we have a dream when we grow up. Eloise had a dream to become a Olympian and she stood on those yellow pages books and she dreamed of it. She ran around that track on a night when she could have been so devastated that she didn't get to do what she was doing. But the dream was still in her heart and what I love about this story, and I think it's true for everyone in this room, we all have some hope, some skills, some talent, something that we do that we've gravitated towards, our career, the opportunities that are placed before us. And what I love about this story is the story of two young people who grew up in two different parts of the world with a dream, Eloise to be an Olympian for Australia Julius to become a professional athlete so he can literally get out of his own poverty and get educated. And in the crazy mystery of life and how it seems God works, these two people come together and they meet and they share each other's stories. And this story gets caught up in a far bigger story that we would say is the the story of God, the story of what God is doing in bringing our individual stories together to be part of something so much bigger. And I'm wondering, before we get to the next part of your story, if you can tell us, what does it feel like to have made it to, in 2012, you finally made it to the Olympic Games um, in London. Tell us about that moment.
1: Yeah. um, It was an incredible moment. I just remember being really, really overwhelmed. I remember walking to the starting line, having flashbacks of all of the times that I'd had to fight for this moment. And um, yeah, it was incredible. I could see my family up in the stands, like right up in the rafters. I think, but, yeah, I could see them. And um, yeah, I think by the time I finally lined up at the Olympics, I felt like my, my, the reason for running the Olympics had a greater purpose and a greater meaning through um, my friendship with Julius and, and through Love Mercy.
0: Yeah. So you run this Olympic Games. It's not your greatest race.
1: <laughs> it wasn't. I was way too emotional. Um, and But it was an incredible experience. And it, it actually set me up for, for my second Olympics, which was which I was really happy with with um, in terms of performance. But um, in the lead up to London, it was about participation. I remember talking to my coach a few months out, and he was just saying, I'm going to... I'm gonna really be conservative with your training here. We're not getting injured this time. And you might go in undercooked, but you're not gonna be injured. And um, you're gonna live this dream. Mm.
0: Why is there so much emotion there for you about that? Uh,
1: typically my coach, he's about winning. He's, which is what you want in a coach, right? <laughs> But for him to see that this this moment meant a lot yeah. and, to, um, and I don't share this a lot, this is probably why I'm getting emotional because I don't get the opportunity to do it, but yeah, he just saw that, okay, we're, we're going to go in, we're not going to go in in the best shape of our life, but we're going to get to the line this time, yeah. we're going to get to the start line, we're going to get to the finish line yeah. and that's going to set you up for, you know, you're going to you're going to tick that box, you're going to live that dream. And almost after making the Olympics, I felt free. Mm. And I felt like, to go to the, my second Olympics in Rio, I was like, I was willing to, like, take risks. Because I was already an Olympian, yeah. I already, you know, I'd already made it, and, and those risks, and I, I had fun being able to take those risks and rather than being afraid yeah. of what might happen.
0: Wow, so fascinating. Yeah. So then you've gone on and so you've finally made two Olympic Games, which was a lifelong dream that you'd had. You've got the Love Mercy Foundation going and some incredible work happening. And then you come to um, another big race, and there's a story that I want you to tell about what happened. And I think we've got a photo here Um of this moment, can you tell us about this moment and then we're going to finish with one more quick story of a recent race and your trans- transition to marathon.
1: Yeah, this, this moment got a fair bit of media. Um, this, is, um, this is an interesting moment. It was 2018 Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast. It was a 10,000 metre race. I was ranked number one going in and I had an absolute shocker. I had one of the worst races of my career in the green and gold and I was walking away off the track after crossing the line just embarrassed, really, really ashamed and embarrassed. And I was looking for somewhere to hide and uh, I turned around and I saw uh, Linneo Choka from Lesotho um, still running and I saw my teammates waiting. And I just had this moment where I was like, "I need to go back." And as embarrassed as I am, I need to go back and and honor this moment because um, she was she was in as much pain as I felt like I was in as well. You know, it's it's um, it's a race for everyone. Everyone's on their own journey within the race, and um, yeah. And then I guess after the race, I was. Because there was so much media around it, I was really, I was a bit concerned about how Linneo felt about it. About So, just to set the scene
0: for those who didn't see it, um, Eloise and the Australian athletes waited. Everyone else walked off, finished their race, and they waited for her and embraced her at the end. Um, that's just important just to understand that context.
1: Yeah, so um, I was worried about how Linneo was um, taking the media around her, whether she was okay about it, um, and so I sought her out in the village and, um, and got to meet her again and, um, the first thing she said to me was, thank you for waiting for me. I got back to my room and let the tears fall, um, because I did not have to finish the race alone. And, uh, that just was touching. <laughs> It made me think about who else in my life I need to metaphorically slow down for and mm-hmm. see and help feel seen, and who else I need to um, just come alongside, outside of racing and running, and help me. Um, yeah, it encouraged me, yeah. and I was grateful to meet her, and still um, we still chat on Facebook. Um, she's got... A daughter like I do. She's got a teenage daughter actually, and my daughter's nine. So she's, I'm always asking her for tips on how to raise a preteen daughter. Pass so, them on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And <clears throat> in that amazing moment, And this is why Eloise is a statesperson for um, athletics in Australia. But. We're gonna finish by. You've transitioned from 5,000 and 10,000 meters to marathon races now. You just felt like running at that pace, 5K and 10K. Eh, let's just go yeah, 40 just plus K. Just not painful enough. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I've moved up to the marathon. Felt like it was time to try something different, new challenge, and I'm I'm loving it. Uh, it was only did my first one last October. Um, so 13. 14 months I've been doing it, and um, yeah, it's been incredible.
0: Yeah, and at the Commonwealth Games, there was an amazing moment that took place that a lot of people don't know, and I've asked if Eloise could share this today, and I know you're normally reluctant to talk about this um, type scenario, Mm -hmm. but you were running along having an, an amazing race in the Commonwealth Games in the marathon, and then another Australian ended up finishing ahead of you um, but there was a backstory that a lot of people didn't know about what happened and how you helped her. Can you tell us what happened?
1: Uh, yeah, so we were at the 20K mark, about the halfway mark in the race, and, um, we we're all, there's still a really big pack, um, in the race, and I was feeling really good at this point, and we were coming up to the drink stations, and the drink stations in a marathon are completely chaotic, um especially when you're in a big pack. So trying to find, um, trying to find your drink, is, it's a bit stressful. And uh, anyway, I got my drink, and I saw Jess um, a few metres ahead, and I heard her say something that's not in the Bible. Um, <laughs> and I came in alongside her, and I said, "What's?" It? and she's like, oh, I miss my drink. And... Um, you know, I asked her what she needed and she said I, need, I normally have a caffeinated gel. And, um, yeah, so I gave her my gel and... Um, Your last one. <laughs> I don't think it cost me the race. I, it definitely didn't cost me the race. I, th- I actually think it helped me to be able to help her. You know, a, few, a couple of weeks beforehand we were training um, in Switzerland together, Jess and I, and we talked about working together in the race Um, and she, she brought it up. She said, I think we should really work as a team. I think we have a really good chance. And I said to her, I don't know what that looks like, but if you miss a drink, you can count on me to have your back. (laughs) So I kind of had to honour that because I said it. (laughs) Um, but honestly, she'll probably never forget it. And in the weeks leading after, um... I'll be honest and I'll tell you that, because I came came forth again and um, I was kind of having this conversation with God going, why do I always have to be the nice guy? (laughs) Can't I just win sometime? And I just felt like God saying back, success looks different to me than it does to you. And I've had to relearn that a number of times in my career, like, success to us, or success to me as an athlete, and to many others as an athlete, and to us as Australians, we love winning medals, is winning and crossing the line first, but I think success to God is being the person that he's called us to be, no matter what, within within the race and within using our gifts, and um, that was another opportunity to do that, and... Um, yeah, it was a privilege, really. I joked with Jess last week because we, we ran the New York Marathon last Sunday together, and I joked with her before the race. I'm like, you know what story you didn't tell? Because I'm a germaphobe from way back. And in the warm up area of the Commonwealth Games, she was like, I forgot to bring my Body Glide. And Body Glide is an anti chafe cream that is, comes in a roll on. <laughs> And it's not the sort of thing you want to lend to anyone, you know? You put it in all your crevices. Like, marathon running is much less glamorous than it even looks. Um, But I lent her my bloody glide before the race. I'm like, you didn't tell that story. (laughs) That I was the reason you didn't get chafe. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, Yeah. we had a really good time. And um, I'm still believing that there are brilliant races ahead and that's why i keep doing it but it's not the only reason um but yeah yeah believing for good things ahead
0: eloise wellings you are an absolute inspiration to us to our country and we want to thank you for sharing a story with us today and it's yeah it's pretty incredible